Greetings, everyone. Welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. As uh, Marjorie said, my name is Dr. Chuck Hallow, and I'll be your moderator for today's call. We're delighted that you can join us. We do understand that there are still people signing, uh, signing into this call uh, due to the large number of individuals who chose to participate today. As you know, author in the room calls are designed to translate new knowledge or what is published in a recent JAMA article into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the room calls occur on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with the next call being on Wednesday, June 17th, again at 2 o'clock p.m. That article will be a 51-year-old woman with acute onset of facial pain, rhinorrhea, and tooth pain, a review of acute rhinosinusitis by Dr. Peter Huang. And uh, that article appeared in the May 6, 2009 issue of JAMA. So please join us for that call. Several organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and certainly we encourage everyone to do so as well. Uh, a special thanks to Dr. Um, uh, Maggie uh, uh, Winker, who is deputy editor of JAMA and who selects our articles uh, every month. Uh, today, our featured author is Dr. Lisa Cooper, and the article is her article, which appeared in the March 25, 2009 issue of JAMA, titled, A 41-Year-Old African-American Man with Poorly Controlled Hypertension, Review of Patient and Physician Factors Related to Hypertension Treatment Adherence. Uh, welcome, Dr. Cooper. Thank you. Dr. Cooper is a professor of medicine epidemiology and Health Policy and Management at Johns Hopkins Medical Institutions. She's in the Division of General in, uh, Internal Medicine uh, at the Welch Center for Prevention, Epidemiology, and Clinical Research. Uh, Dr. Cooper uh, did her training at both Emory and then the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and her MPH at the Johns Hopkins University School of Public Health. So we're delighted to uh, have Dr. Cooper here with us today. As moderator, uh, it is my job to help focus the discussion on the application of Dr. Cooper's work with the goal of driving performance improvement based on this article. Uh, once again, Author in the Room is uh, made available to you so that you can hear directly from the author about their research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. Together, Dr. Cooper and I will help you translate what's in today's paper into clinical application for your practice. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Cooper will spend about 10 minutes summarizing uh, this article. This is not a research article, as you know, but more of a review article. Uh, I will then take another few minutes just to draw out some implications for the real-world practice uh, and set the stage for your questions and comments. We do encourage you not just to ask questions, but your experiences in this regard are very valuable, and we encourage them. Uh, I want to stress how important your participation is in these calls. This is a great forum in which to get clarification on anything in the article itself by hearing directly from the lead author and to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps you might take in using this information towards improved patient care. Your participation, not just in terms of questions, but offering your experience in this area will be very helpful. There were about 200 lines signed into the call, so we're excited about that. It's a very large number of participants out there with several individuals per line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. One other note, 
this call, as is uh, true for all of the author of the room calls, is recorded and made available on both IHI and JAMA websites as podcasts. Complete details are available uh, at the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are available there as well. So let's get started. Once again, let me introduce Dr. Lisa Cooper, who will summarize uh, her article. Dr. Cooper. Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be with all of you today. Um, the article that we're discussing today is uh, based on a case, uh, and um, I was asked to to discuss several questions. So first of all, I'll just summarize very quickly some of the, the highlights of the case and then tell you what the questions were that were addressed in the article. So again, this is an African-American man who had a long history of poorly controlled hypertension and inconsistency to um, treatments that were recommended for him. And although um, he was aware of the seriousness of his, his illness and had even, you know, had some complications of hypertension, he admitted that he had ignored his high blood pressure treatment uh, recommendations from his clinician and really admitted that he had some concerns about how effective medications were and um, that he, he was concerned about uh, unacceptable side effects and really actually had some concerns about whether medical care would actually do anything to help him. And um, so, you know, he admitted that there were some problems with his adherence to treatment um, and did acknowledge that he was willing to do certain things like to exercise and and to find a way to eat more healthy, uh, but um, really was unclear about what he would be willing to do with regard to taking his medications regularly. So I was asked to, to address a series of questions, and I'll just sort of go through um, each of them and summarize uh, what I was able to glean from the literature, existing literature, and also from some of my own work. So first of all, uh, one of the questions I was asked was to address the issue of what the epidemiology and impact of hypertension was in African Americans, and I think most people on the call are probably quite familiar with the fact that hypertension disproportionately affects African Americans and that, you know, they suffer disproportionately from complications, you know. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but, but that's been extensively documented. In, um, and actually the fact that cardiovascular disease contributes to, to 35% of the excess mortality in African Americans is in large part due to hypertension and the lack of control of hypertension. So the second question that uh, I was asked to address was, do we know whether there are efficacious uh, treatments for hypertension and whether or not they actually differ by race or ethnicity? And uh, in reviewing the literature, it's pretty clear that uh, there are no racial differences, essentially very few racial differences in the efficacy of hypertension treatment. So, you know, most of the medications work equally well in African Americans and whites. There are a few uh, differences in some cases, but not substantial enough to justify uh, using race as a criterion for selecting uh, medication therapies. So. We know that uh, there are efficacious treatments for for African Americans uh, that comparable to whites. Uh, as far as evidence for differences in um, adverse effects or side effects, 
there's really no evidence that, that African Americans experience more adverse side effects from uh, antihypertensive medications. Uh, there was uh, basically, you know, there, there are a few studies that have shown that, you know, adverse effects of treatment exist, but, you know, we're talking about fairly low rates of, you know, things like um, urinary frequency, you know, and um, uh, erection problems, which seems to be a, a, con a prevalent concern among um, African-American men. But actually, the rates of those side effects are somewhere in the order of 10 to 15 percent, and, and these are, you know, old studies. And uh, none of them have, have actually looked at racial differences, so, you know, we don't know whether there are differences in, for example, in, um, in erectile dysfunction by race. But at least as far as we can tell, very, very little evidence for racial differences in, in side effects. So then the next issue, broad issue, I was asked to discuss in the article had to do with um, the barriers to hypertension treatment that exist uh, at, at different levels. So at the individual patient level, at, um, at the level of the healthcare system, including um, the level of health professionals, and um, those were actually the two main levels. I, I wasn't really asked to address, you know, sort of broader societal factors that, that might play a role. So I, I used... Um, I used a review from the, the World Health Organization. It was a report that was published back in 2003 that looked at uh, different uh, dimensions that affect adherence to long-term therapies. And I talked a little bit about, about some of those and how they might apply to the case. So, you know, the World, the World Health Organization sort of classifies um, barriers of adherence into uh, categories such as social and economic factors. So, you know, I described a little bit about that. Um, you know, the fact that um, lack of insurance or um, underinsurance or uh, unemployment, things like that can contribute to, to can, can be barriers to adherence. And uh, some of those social and economic barriers are more common among African Americans than among whites. So that's, that's they're always a consideration. There are specific therapy and condition-related factors that contribute to, to poor adherence. So, you know, the fact that a disease is, is rather asymptomatic, like hypertension is, can lead to poor adherence. Um, you know, things like having to take a medication on a daily basis for years and years, that can, can be difficult for a lot of people. And the patient that I was asked to discuss actually did, make several statements related to the fact that he he felt that the medications, you know, he, he, he didn't feel the effects of hypertension, and so he didn't really feel like he had a need to take medication. Uh, I didn't spend as much time in the article talking about healthcare system factors, but um, there there are uh, several healthcare system factors that contribute to poor hypertension control and um, you know, they had been described in a previous clinical crossroads article by Tom Bodenheimer. So I, I, I mentioned them briefly, and um, some of them had to do with uh, access to primary care and the availability and length of appointments and whether or not there was uh, self-management support at the system level. 
And later in the article, I talked about um, what the evidence sort of shows for that. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that. But the bulk of the article was spent on uh, discussing patient-related factors and and physician-related factors and then patient-physician in, um, interactions and communication and its role in um, in uh, improving hypertension control. So, um, you know, so one of the things I spent quite a bit of time looking at was the uh, the fact that patient health beliefs and attitudes uh, contribute substantially to to hypertension control, and that there are some several studies that have shown that some of these health beliefs and attitudes do differ uh, according to race and ethnicity. One of the highlights of the points I made, though, was that um, when dealing with an individual patient, it's important just to know uh, sort of what's been described on an epidemiologic level and uh, on a group level um, for, you know, the particular group that they belong to, but that it, it's always important to consider the patient's own context, so to not necessarily assume that what you've learned from the literature about a group of people necessarily applies to an individual patient. So. You know, for example, there have been several studies that looked at lay health beliefs with regard to hypertension and shown that, you know, that there are many African-American patients who see hypertension as um, as a disease that really it does not need to be treated with medication, but, but rather should be, is sort of a stress reaction or something that is uh, caused by eating different types of foods, which, you know, may or may not have some validity to it. But the fact is that uh, it's always important to sort of probe on a patient level, you know, this is what I drew from the literature, probe on an individual patient level what um, beliefs might be driving um, the patient's behavior. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I reviewed some of the literature that of what uh, effective strategies there were to improve patient adherence, and a, a lot of them have to do with simplifying the dosage regimen, um, involving another health professional such as a nurse or pharmacist um, to work with the primary care clinician. Um, those are the those are the strategies that have been shown to be most effective, and it's really been fairly clear that educating patients alone and not doing anything else is not is not effective. Uh, but, but basically, if you combine um, strategies like um, home monitoring, counseling by a nurse or, or a pharmacist, along with patient education, that you can uh, achieve uh, better, better blood pressure control. And, um, and the studies that targeted providers alone uh, have, not, have also not shown improvements in in outcomes, you know, so in some cases they've shown improvements in physicians' prescribing behaviors, but not in outcomes. So, you know, we sort of know that there are some strategies that are effective. There have been very few studies that have actually looked at the quality of the doctor-patient interaction and communication. And so I spent, you know, a, a long time in the article talking about communication behaviors and the specific dimensions of, of communication and relationship that might improve health outcomes and that do differ by race. So I'll just mention what they are um, briefly and then we can, you know, we can, I can entertain questions later. But, but one of the dimensions is partnership or having a participatory communication 
lifestyle with the patient. Uh, those patterns of communication have been shown to differ by race, so African Americans uh, tend to, to participate less in um, decisions about their care, and physicians tend to, to dominate um, the communication process more when interacting with African American patients. So uh, that could be contributing to 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 poor um, health outcomes. There are power dynamics in the doctor-patient relationship that that can contribute to to poor communication and poor outcomes. There are uh, several studies that have shown that concordance, social concordance, so that things like whether or not the patient and physician share the same racial or ethnic background influence the communication process and uh, could influence um, patient outcomes as well, although uh, some of there there have been few studies that have actually linked race concordance to to outcomes. So these were things that we I discussed and that some of them were probed with the with the, the particular patient and, and um you know he did seem to not be um, to not participate very actively in decisions about his treatment. He con expressed some concerns about whether or not he could trust uh, the healthcare system. And um, but when asked about the influence of concordance, social concordance with his doctor, he didn't really think that that played a role. So, um, you know, that's basically where we were. And then um, at the end of the article, uh, I was asked to give some specific recommendations to uh, the patient and to his physician. And I'm not, I, I think I could stop now, but because I've been talking for about 10 minutes, but it's, what do you think? Dr. Kilo? Uh, if there, uh, at least if there are any other just summative points you want to make, that's great. If not, we can, uh, I'm sure we'll hit the points in the Q&A session. So whatever you feel comfortable with. We still have, we have a few more minutes if you want to go more. Okay. So, I mean, hopefully I've hit the high points, you know. So, you know, the high points being that cardiovascular disease basically contributes to excess, excess mortality in large part because of hypertension. Uh, that, you know, there aren't any important differences in the efficacy of treatment. And, um, in fact, a lot of studies have shown that, that African Americans are equally likely to receive uh, guideline concordant treatment for hypertension, but they are not as likely as whites to actually achieve blood pressure control. And, you know, it's unclear to what extent there are patient-related factors and physician-related factors that might be contributing um, you know, when you look at communication as a potential contributor, we know that there are racial differences in communication. And we also know that there are some attitudes that may differ by race and ethnicity. And, you know, so it's recommended that uh, using a, a really patient-centered approach to the interview, the medical interview, can help to uncover some of those attitudes and uh, some of those barriers and encouraging patients to participate more actively in um, the encounter can lead to improved outcomes. Well, Dr. Cooper, that was really fantastic. I really appreciate the summary. And I was, uh, despite our prior conversation and me having read the article, I was I was still feverishly taking notes from your comments. So I, I appreciate them and I'm sure everybody else does as well. We do want to turn now to um, the implications of Dr. Cooper's work and her, sum, her, her summary uh, to uh, to the implications for your practice and to your Q and A. Uh, so we will turn to that at this point. Uh, I will ask Marjorie to give us instructions how to get in the queue for a question, and uh, and then we'll get things started. Marjorie. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen on the phone lines. If you would like to ask a question, that is star one at this time. 
If you're using a speakerphone, please make sure your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. And once again, that is star one. We'll pause for a moment. Great. Thank you. So, um, uh, Lisa, a couple of things that came to mind as you were talking. It's, it strikes me, uh, I thought it was very interesting about the nurse and the pharmacist and their impact, uh, the visiting nurse and the, and the pharmacist. And I wonder if part of the impact is is that uh, there's probably a higher likelihood that uh, the, the visiting nurse and the local pharmacist might actually be community members. Right. They, they might actually be of the of the same ethnicity, uh, and so it might be a very different interaction uh, uh, than uh, than with their physician. So there might be a different level of of trust or something with that interaction. So, uh, any thoughts on that? I think that's a a, a really um, imp- interesting. Um, Question, and I don't know to what extent uh, the, the studies that have actually used nurses and pharmacists use um, people who are from the community. You know, right. so I, I am in the midst right now. Actually, I've just completed a study where we actually used community health workers, so they were people from the local community, to spend more time with patients, trying to uncover what their uh, barriers were to treatment and. Um, and like what concerns they had for the physician and trying to help them uh, formulate their questions and and empower them to sort of go in to see the, the physician and state what their preferences were. And we showed some some great improvements, you know, in, in blood pressure control using that approach. And it may have been in large part because of that social um, and cultural tailoring of the approach. Sure. Very interesting. Well, uh, I could ask a lot more questions, but I think it's only fair to open up the lines for questions now. So, Marjorie? Thank you, sir. And at this time, we have no questions. But once again, ladies and gentlemen, that is star one if you have a question. They're going to leave all the fun to us. So let me ask you this, uh, Lisa. The, uh, for your, the study you just mentioned that you completed, um, you know, the African-American community in particular uh, tends to – uh, I think aggregate quite strongly around their churches, and so to what degree would your community health uh, health workers uh, have involved the churches, or have there been studies of using the church uh, and the pulpit, if you will, to influence how people think about their health, which would impact both hypertension, diabetes, obesity, uh, diet and exercise, and those types of things. So there have been studies that have uh, utilized churches and, and spiritual leaders in the community to to provide um, health behavior messages. And one of them, I mean, I'm sure there are several, but the one that comes to mind is um, a study led by one of my colleagues here at Johns Hopkins, whose name is Diane Becker, and she had a, a community partnership, community academic partnership research program called Heart, Body, and Soul that she was a part of. And they, I know, used churches and they had ministers who would deliver uh, sermons that had, you know, health messages embedded in the sermon. And I know that they showed some very positive effects on a community level. Again, this wasn't part of the article that I wrote because I my article was focused on physicians and patients in the healthcare setting, but there have been a variety of, like, community-based strategies that have been used effectively, I think the problem has just been sustainability of those programs. And it's the, it's the sustainability of 
continuing to work with the church administration or, or maybe to formalize such a health program uh, right. with, within the church? I think it is. I think that there's a need to, to formalize programs and to, to assure that there are, like, ongoing resources for them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a lot of the, the partnerships, you know, have been formed um, out of sort of uh, grant funding opportunities, and sometimes um, there have been, like, turnover in the community. And, and you know, it, it requires quite a bit of effort to keep those relationships going and, to keep the programs, you know, moving forward. Right. So uh, perhaps a significantly underutilized resource there. I think so. And I think there needs to be a link between the community and the healthcare system, which I think, you know, is, uh, is always, has always been a challenge. But there's a need for um, the healthcare system to be sort of more um, embedded in the community that it serves and to sort of be more aware of the resources and the other contextual issues that influence, you know, patients' ability to actually access care and follow through on treatment, you know, and screening recommendations. So, you know, a lot of times uh, physicians are practicing, but they are not really fully aware of what's going on, like on an environmental level in terms of you know, I mean, there are other things that I've been reading about lately that have to do with things like just food availability in in certain neighborhoods, you know. So a physician might recommend that the patient follows a DASH diet and, you know, eat certain fruits and vegetables, and then the patient, particularly in these sort of economically um, disadvantaged areas, may not be able to find those, those fruits and vegetables in the supermarkets, you know, in yeah, the neighborhood. I've always been very impressed that I think the same – uh, stands true for many rural areas. Uh, I've spent time in some er- areas of rural America, and uh, even though that's where most of the farms are, you go into the grocery stores, and there's a real paucity of healthy foods in the grocery stores, right in the middle of the breadbasket, it would seem. Yeah. And uh, uh, that's a, that's always been a dis- disconcerting observation for me. Uh, Marjorie? Thank you. We'll take our first phone question from Judith Arneson with Partners Home Care. Hi. I'm a... I'm a home care nurse, um, see patients a couple days a week, but I'm also a clinical instructor for a new grad internship program, getting new grad nurses into home care. And so I'm, I'm interested in guidance on how visiting nurses can be most effective in promoting behavior change. I think it's something that we have a great will to do and a great uh, opportunity to do, um, particularly with sort of frequent visits, frequent repeated visits, and being able to build a relationship in the context of a patient's own home, and I think that cultural similarities are a piece of it, but even failing that, just being present in the patient's own context uh, and being able to make those relationships does really afford a great opportunity for assessment and a great opportunity for intervention. But make, promoting behavior change is still challenging. Wondering, wondered if you had thoughts on, on how, how we can best do that as visiting nurses. Right. Well, I I hear you, and I agree with the the really critical role that um, home care nurses could play, you know, in in this uh, problem and in you know other similar problems for other chronic illnesses. Um, you probably know more than I do about how to do this, but but one of the things I would say is I don't know to what extent you're sort of familiar with the motivational interviewing um, perspective. 
I I have heard the phrase basically. So um, I think, you know that's something sort of worth uh, learning a little bit more about yeah. the training programs in that. And part of it is that um, the way you sort of uh, you you build a relationship with someone because you you continue to visit them and you see them in their home. But but some of uh, getting to understand people and help them with behavior change is, is understanding more about how they think and what motivates them. And, right. and not necessarily going in with a specific um, educational agenda that sort of, you know, precedes understanding more about, like, well, what, you know, what do you think? Right. What are your priorities for your health? What are you trying to achieve here? Yes. Yeah, so I think, I think learning more about that approach could be helpful. You know, yeah. I, I know it's not going to be just one thing, but I think that that's, that's one potential thing. I think that um, that that patients, people in the community have seems like they have a strong need for someone to help them navigate the healthcare system too. And so, I think that's another critical role for a home right. to play is to help the, help people understand how the healthcare system works and how they can prepare themselves to to be more effective when they go in seeking help. You know. Yeah. Well, thank I don't you know if that's answered your question. Yeah, actually, those are two those are two great points and ones that I'll make with my interns. Do, do you um, do you believe that most visiting nurses are intellectually there with you? That they believe that that's part of their work, or is that a culture change amongst the visiting population? I I don't know. Um, it's probably really varied. I think that there's there are really motivated, really tuned in nurses who are are very much keyed into to getting to that level with their patients and, and really promoting behavior change. And certainly, I mean, as as anywhere, there, there are people who just kind of want to put an X in the box and move on to the next thing. But sure. well, Here's another thing I just thought about, too, is related to, you know, do, do you have materials that you share with patients or, or resources that you recommend to them? We We have patient handouts, you know, a blood pressure patient handout or a heart failure patient handout or... And do you know to what extent those materials are actually appropriate for the reading level and appropriate in terms of sort of just the cultural context of the information? That's a really good question. I It's been a while since I've looked at them, frankly. And I, t I tend, in my own teaching, when I'm actually the one who's seeing patients, I tend to write things out, and sometimes I'll even write, Dear Mr. Johnson, <laughs> so that it's it's personalizing it, it's making part of our making it part of our conversation, and then these are the things we agreed on today, and we'll write out, um, so, yeah, so tend to write out my teaching more than I use handouts. So, yeah, so you may want to, well, okay, if you use your own materials, then that's good, but I was going to say that if you used other materials, you might want to look at them with a critical eye. Right, particularly for reading level kinds of issues. Yeah. And then the other thing, I'm going to make one more point and then I'll be quiet, but um, related to sort of the motivational interviewing approach, this mm -hmm. is another approach that's been recommended to physicians in terms of educating patients, and I don't know whether you've heard about this, but it's called the teach-back method. And there are probably yes. some people on the phone who have heard about that. So, you know, once you've provided people with information, uh, one of the ways to really figure out whether uh, – they are understanding or on board with you is to actually ask them to tell you, you know, what you've just discussed or what it is they're going, to, they're planning to do, and then you get a good feeling for whether 
you know, you and the patient are actually on the same wavelength. Right. Yeah. My interns and I have have discussed the teach back method, and it it can feel stilted and strange when you're not used to it. But we, yeah, we're we're trying to to implement that to some degree. Great. Very helpful, Judith. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. You know, and there certainly is nothing like being in someone's house to look looking at uh, what's on their coffee table, being able to oh, peer into the refrigerator to know what's going on with the patient. Very interesting. Yeah. It's it, the to the point of just here are their daily meds that are the ones you take every they take every day and over here is their pain med or their their other PRNs and you notice that their Lasix is with their PRNs and that huh and that's something that you can never catch in in another setting other than the home setting. Right. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Mar- Marjorie. Thank you. Our next question comes from Elizabeth Foley with Medical Care Development. Hi, um, yes, Elizabeth Foley, and I'm calling from, I wanted to mention, um, Dr. Kylo, I think you brought up a rural location, and we are in Maine, so we are fairly rural, and um, I was wondering if there's any input you might be able to give um, around, say, telephonic support for uh, helping patients manage their blood pressure. I know we've done a little bit around telephonic support with diabetes, but really thinking about uh, implementing it for um, blood pressure management. And the other idea we talked a little bit about was telemedicine or, or, you know, maybe connecting some of our more rural clinics with other support groups in our more, if you could call them urban in Maine, we don't, (laughs) urban settings. So I was just wondering if you had any input on telephonic support or telemedicine and blood pressure management. Really, I think really a great question, and I would say for Dr. Cooper that she is both, I think, expert in some of these cultural aspects, if you will, the cultural appropriateness and cultural sensitivity. But then there's a, that, that other piece, which is just the doctor-patient relationship and the connectivity there that is so, so critical, and both of those are uh, are valuable. And I think some of what you, you, you ask here, Elizabeth, is really about how do we – Create that connectivity over distance, yeah. uh, and provide provide care in that way. And I've got some thoughts on that, but Dr. Cooper, why don't you go ahead and go first? Sure. Um, I think that you know telephonic support and telemedicine hold a lot of promise, you know, for for this area. Um, you know, there's been some recent work actually showing, surprisingly, you know, a lot of people have thought that um, that you know, disadvantaged groups, and I don't know if you're just talking about people people who are rural, you know, or if you're talking about them being also disadvantaged due to, like, social class or, you know, or ethnicity or anything else, but it's been shown that actually health IT, so, you know, web-based applications and, you know, things like cell phone use and all of that are actually pretty acceptable to a lot of people, and so, you know, that there is a lot of promise for using those kinds of strategies to kind of get people linked in with, like, other other folks who have the same illness and or, you know, linked into a provider or to a care manager. So I think that, you know, I think there's a lot of hope for that, and a lot of it just needs to be investigated more widely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, really good point. And I'm hoping nobody on the call mentions either Facebook or Twitter. If we <laughs> get away with that, we're, we're okay. But, but we do... Uh, Elizabeth, as you may know, we do a tremendous amount of electronic care in, in my practice here, which in many ways serves as a bit of a research and development site for uh, medical practice design and um, and whatnot. 
And so we do a lot, a tremendous amount of, of e-care. Um, and it is my habit and, and that of my colleagues that anybody who has hypertension, as an example, our primary instruction to them is uh, you need to get a blood pressure cuff and you need to be doing your, your own self-monitoring and self-management at home. And so let's talk about the self-management. Let's talk about the self-monitoring and then let's talk about the concordant self-management. And here is the range in which you need to keep your blood pressure. And here's what you can do to titrate your blood pressure medications. Um, and create an expectation that this is their condition to manage with our assistance. And our assistance does not need a visit. Mm-hmm. Our, our, assistant, our assistance needs a relationship. It needs connectivity. And yep. it needs data. Uh, and all of that can happen either over the phone or over email or over some combination of the two. Yeah, and I think that's really a very important thing for uh, for rural practices. Well, I'm sitting in Portland, Oregon, and we are not rural. We do take care of people from literally all over the all over the uh, the state. Sure. I have one patient who lives in Mexico City, another person who lives in Italy, and we provide a lot of e care to them uh, because they're they're smart self managers, and they will call with with questions, and they can give guidance, and if they need to, they can see somebody locally. But and that's frequently not needed. That, that might be an extreme example. But for anybody with diabetes or congestive heart failure or hypertension, uh, the issue is how do we activate them mm-hmm. and then how do we give them the right connectivity to us uh, so that we can work together uh, on their self-management. Uh, and none of that really or very little of that really requires a visit yeah. or the visits are, are quite rare. Uh, and so I think there's just a, a tremendous amount that we can that we can do in that regard. And lots of people are working on, on that connectivity. Many electronic health records do have secure messaging uh, uh, capabilities and things along those lines, which uh, which assist in this regard. Uh, so that's how that's how we think about that. Uh, but it is an active process of getting the individual engaged in their own self-monitoring and their own self-management. Yeah, and and the question I have, too, you talk about building the relationship with the um, health provider. Would you you say there are – it has to be a clinician, or could that be others on the health team that could do some of the – say if it is, you know, know, an electronic mechanism or telemedicine or telephonic or, you know, uh, e-care – could there be other members of the healthcare team that help facilitate some of that? Yeah, certainly. Hopefully so. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you and you and Maine have done a lot of work on this. Charlie Berger, for sure, and many others uh, as well. And uh, and I think moving towards a, the type of team you're alluding to is really appropriate yeah. within the context of the right information system, so that people do have the right information in front of them. Uh, and uh, uh, but having nurse practitioners or nurses or uh, other other professionals, pharmacists doing that type of work, I think is just perfect. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Thank you. Lisa, any other thoughts on that? No, I mean, I would agree. And, in fact, you know, I'm putting on my researcher hat again, but, I mean, the evidence would suggest that those are the situations in which it works best is having, like, um, a pharmacist or a nurse actually doing a lot of that sort of um, telephonic or or electronic, you know, Advice and then and then you know feeding back to the primary care physician and you know or provider and getting their kind of approval on what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very good. Thank you. Um, thank you, Marjorie. Our very next question comes from Nelson Record with Franklin Community Health Networks. Hi there. This is another rural Maine call. Um, 
here in West Central Maine, we've been involved in a, uh, a, a, a grant for gender-specific approach uh, to high blood pressure. Um, you'd think that we would be experts of what those factors are. Uh, we actually are not. Uh, so I'm interested, from both of your perspectives, whether there are gender-specific factors that uh, that you know of that affect blood pressure presentation, detection, management, communication, control, uh, any factors that are gender-specific. Wow. <laughs> um, I, I can start with a few. Actually, I am not aware of any um, gender-specific um, biological issues per se, and, you know, um, I do know that um, that there are gender differences in communication style and in just use of healthcare. So, um, you know, women are just kind of more likely to be to come in for their, you know, for their primary care, and so more likely probably to be detected um, as having high blood pressure than than men. So, you know, there are some differences in control rates based on that. Uh, so there's different standard differences in access and then in communication, you know, women are, have just been shown in a lot of studies to ask more questions and to sort of be more engaged in their health care and to focus, to tell uh, physicians more about psychosocial issues. And we know those things are related to, to positive outcomes. So, you know, the link hasn't really necessarily been made that, you know, that women actually have better outcomes because of better communication with physicians, but those differences have been shown. So do you know of dif different, I'm not aware of any sort of treatment um, differences either, but this, you know, this is an area that hasn't really been studied extensively. One of the, um, one of the issues that we have been at least exploring, but not in a studying kind of way, is, is engaging uh, adults in the workplace uh, and whether engaging adults, men versus compared to women, appealing to different uh, different parts of people's lives as a sort of an incentive um, to take their blood pressure seriously. For example, appealing to women's, the tendency for women to really see themselves as caregivers to their children and spouse and other family members and, and therefore raising the specter of them not being no longer being able to care for the others that they love, versus perhaps a man's ability ability to be physically active uh, with his outdoor or heavy work, or his ability to uh, be sexually functioning. Yeah, so I think what you're sort of talking about is kind of um, maybe some social uh, marketing and social targeting of health messages, and I think they're there's a lot that's being done to sort of look into that. I mean, it sounds intuitively like it would work, you know. And as far as, like, just trying to reach people where they are, I know that, you know, at least in the the, the research field, you know, one of the thoughts is to try to get people into care who are not traditionally using care. So, you know, people like men, for example, that sometimes – you, know, you we ought to be taking some of our health screenings and promotions to like barber shops, you know, or to uh, gyms or to out on the football field or something. So you know, I think that that's a really interesting thought and kind of the whole idea of us 
the fact that there's a whole environment out there outside of the clinic that we kind of need to connect with in order to reach people and to meet their needs. I think you're right on right on target there. To what degree do you find uh, men being fearful of taking blood pressure medicines because they fear it may interfere with their sexual function? Well, you know, I've heard things about it anecdotally. I have to say I haven't really seen a lot of studies about it. And you remember that one, um, I don't know if you were on the call earlier, where I described how how common erectile problems were. It's a pretty old study, but it showed that I guess it was around 10 to 15% of people who were on medications um, experienced, um, men experienced erectile dysfunction. And I'm trying to remember. I think um, I think it was it was with uh, a diuretic therapy. It appeared that it to be it was a little bit higher with diuretic therapy than with other medications. But again, you know, so we're talking like on the order of like uh, 17 to 18 percent um, of people on of men on diuretics versus like maybe somewhere between six and 10 percent of people on other medications. So I don't know, I don't, I haven't seen a lot of, I've, I've heard about that anecdotally, but uh, again, um, I don't, you know, I don't know exactly, like, which men are more concerned about this and whether are there are any specific um, uh, types of uh, characteristics that would predispose uh, someone to this problem. I don't think a lot of that has been studied, not that I'm aware of. Very interesting line of inquiry, though, and certainly there are, uh, you know, gender-specific side effects, and uh, that's part of part of what you're getting at here. And there are certainly gender-specific communication styles, uh, with gross gross generalities, obviously. But it was a very interesting uh, question, interesting line of line of uh, discussion. I am a big fan of gender-specific high schools, if that has any connection there, but it probably doesn't. <laughs> My own personal experience. In that regard. All right, uh, Marjorie? Thank you. We'll next go to Darlene Ashford with Yale University. Hello. My question is related to um, education. You, you mentioned um, having simplified dosage, um, also involving other healthcare providers and home monitoring. And you said coupled with patient education. So I want to know is it group education, is it individual education, or is it both? And also, what are your thoughts about group medical visits? Um, okay, so the, I guess the educational um, programs that have been used, some of them have been on a group level, some of them have been individual. Uh, they, you know, they've, they've been shown to be effective in either format. It sort of, I think, depends more on what the, um, what sort of the targeted uh, skills are. I think what has been shown is that you you don't basically just give people information. You sort of have to to give them teach them skills, you know, and um, you also um, basically need to give them like support. So you can't sort of just you know give people factual information. But but whether it's an individual or group format, I don't think. Um, I don't think really matters. And now I'm missing your, I'm forgetting your second point or question. Yeah, um, as far as hypertension and like group medical visits um, and trying to um, medically manage patients, um, I don't know if you've had 
any experience or know of any research regarding group medical visits and hypertension. I know that there's been group medical visits like by per, um, Permanente regarding, um, I think, some hypertension, but I know specifically diabetes. So. Right. And I also have heard more about the group visits for diabetes than, than for hypertension. And uh, I don't have any personal experience with using a group visits for hypertension. But, um, right. I think the you challenge know. is to connect the clear data to it. Right. But group right. visits are now being used uh, for lots of different things, particularly the chronic conditions and particularly the frail elderly. Uh, in those situations, it makes sense where you have a, uh, in many ways, a unified uh, disease or condition-specific group of folks that you're targeting because you have a common set of issues, drugs, concerns, questions that you're addressing with those individuals. Um, which would be the most common type of, uh, of group visit. And I think in that setting uh, where you're doing education, right now we do education one person at a time, one exam room at a time, uh, which may not be the most efficient way to go about it, and certainly to do that in a group setting where many people share common questions and concerns uh, is fantastic. John Scott, uh, who is one of the originators of uh, the group visit model, uh, who was at that time at uh, Kaiser uh, Colorado, who's now at uh, University of uh, Colorado in Denver. Um, uh, he and his Kaiser colleagues created a video about group visits from the early 90s, I think it was, which is still highly applicable. It's just, just a fantastic uh, little video. And one of the things it demonstrates is that they have so much to learn. People have so much to learn from each other. And uh, John tells a story about one young person who had developed rheumatoid arthritis and who had questions about how is she going to live with this rheumatoid arthritis. And John was speechless. He doesn't have rheumatoid arthritis. He didn't know how to answer her because he had never had to live with it. But somebody else in the room raised their hand and said, I'll, I'll tell you how you're going to live with this. Uh, and so, oh, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. So I think that that type of dynamic which you can set up in a, in a group visit is, uh, is uh, uh, highly pertinent, has some issues of cultural sensitivity, but just a lot of just basic education and real-life learning involved in it. Right, and I, I think one of the things to think about is that, you know, people need um, choices. So group visits may work for some people and not for others. And so I think sure. we it's a good idea for us to, you know, have different approaches and see, you know, if we can have different approaches that work well because not everybody's going to want to sit in a group and, you know, share personal issues or whatever, but a lot of people might benefit from it, so. Right. right on. Very good. Uh, Marjorie? Thanks for our next question. We'll go to Marilyn Watson with WellPoint. Hi, Dr. Cooper. Um, I work um, in a clinical interventions team, and we're implementing throughout our plans um, a variety of different initiatives around cardiac disease, one being in the greater Atlanta area. And I was just curious, um, what nuggets can you share to change behavior with the diverse cultures that are in the greater Atlanta area uh, who use recipes that are traditional, however, are cal just calorie-laden, which is contributing to obesity, which is obviously a precursor to hypertension and stroke? Right. Wow. Well, I think one of the things... <laughs> One of the things that helped, and I, I may have alluded to this earlier, is just kind of understanding more about the social context and the environment. So, you know, sometimes um, if you're part of an intervention team, 
you know, I don't know to what extent you actually go out in the neighborhoods of the people that you're you're working with and have a good understanding about what it is they experience. So where what where are all the where can they go to get something to eat quickly, you know, if they want to and what are kind of their choices and options and the better understanding that you have of that context, I think the better able you will be to um to to kind of give people advice that they are likely to find acceptable, you know. So, do you, you know, I don't know to what degree you have experience, like, looking at kind of what's the density of fast food, you know, places. What what kind of uh, fresh food uh, markets or farmer's markets do they have available to them? Do, is there a lot of just uh, canned foods that have a lot of sodium in them in the in the markets where they frequent? You know, things like that could, I think, be very helpful to, to know. And then that way you can sort of, be able to give better advice about how to to you know change a recipe so that maybe it fits with um, uh, you know cultural preferences, but also fits with what resources are people have available to them in their neighborhoods. Okay, thank you. Great, thank you. Well, Dr. Cooper, we are approaching the end of the hour. Unfortunately, I've learned a lot from just listening to you and to the uh, the other participants ask their questions and give their experiences. Anything you want to say to summarize here, things here at the end of the call? Um, I don't think I have that much more to add. Um, I would just say, you know, that um, we should persevere in this, and that um, in a lot of ways, I, I hope hypertension doesn't remain like I sort of see it as almost as a stepchild of the chronic diseases, uh, because I feel like I, diabetes gets a lot of uh, focus and attention, and I think uh, in large part because hypertension is relatively asymptomatic, that we haven't really given it, you know, the attention it needs in terms of what people really need to know and what they need to focus on in order to to be compliant and, you know, to be successful at managing their illness. Well, I really appreciate it. And that is all the time we have for questions today. It's been a wonderful discussion of these issues brought out by the article. Uh, again, Dr. Cooper, thank you very much for your, uh, your thoughts and your comments today. Thank you. As a reminder, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion takes place on June 17th, 2 o'clock p.m., Eastern Time, uh, authored by uh, Dr. Peter Huang uh, in the uh, May 6, 2009 issue of JAMA titled A 51-Year-Old Woman with Acute Onset of Facial Pain, Rhinorrhea, and Tooth Pain, Review of Acute Rhinosinusitis, sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical care. Thanks to all of you for being a part of Arthur in the Room today. Good day.